So I am James Kirk. I'm a postdoc at the Centre for Astrophysics at Harvard and Smithsonian. This is Mike Wong, and you're listening to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Not too long ago, I had the opportunity to journey to the Extreme Solar Systems Conference in Reykjavik, Iceland. Why Iceland, you might ask? Well, this conference, which occurs only once every four years, has a history of being held in volcanic locations. First Santorini, then Yellowstone, then Hawaii, and now on the volcanic island of Iceland. I guess the organizers wanted the attendees to feel the raw power of the planet they're standing on, or something like that. Anyway, extreme solar systems is all about exoplanets. Everything exoplanets. And with nearly 600 participants from all over the world, it was a great opportunity to meet new researchers and learn about their science. As I was perusing the registration list, a name caught my eye. No. It can't be. There's got to be a mistake or this is totally a joke. But it wasn't. James Kirk was coming to the Extreme Solar Systems Conference. Fascinating. James Kirk, the real-life astronomer, explores real-life strange new worlds through the method of transmission spectroscopy. So most of the exoplanets that we've discovered to date have been found as they transit or cross in front of their stars as viewed from Earth's vantage point. When these transits occur, the tiny little planet blocks out a tiny fraction of their star's light. And if that planet has an atmosphere, that atmosphere will block out a tiny fraction of that tiny fraction. But only at the specific wavelengths of light that the gases in that atmosphere absorb. So it's like the star's light is filtering through that gas, and most of it reaches Earth, except for incriminating gaps in the spectrum of that starlight. Astronomers call these gaps features because they are specific, identifiable, dead giveaways for the gases in those atmospheres. So, like a water feature would be the spectral fingerprint of H2O vapor, in a planet's atmosphere. And astronomers also sometimes call these gaps or features lines because they can often be very narrow slices of the spectrum that are absorbed out by the specific transitions and energies of the electrons in the gases. All right, I think that's all the background that you need to know for this interview. Now let's go meet James Kirk. So I never thought I'd actually say this, but welcome, James Kirk, to Strange New Worlds. 
Thank you very much. That <laughs> seems quite appropriate. <laughs> yeah. Um, is your middle name Tiberius by any chance? It is not, no. Much to many people's disappointment. <laughs> I actually have no middle name. It is just James Kirk. Just James Kirk. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Have you ever thought of just adding the Tiberius in there? I have been asked by a number of people that, but I, I kind of like it the way it is, to be honest. Tiberius has been a nickname of mine for a long time, so I have friends who call me Tiberius. Really? Friends that call me Captain. Yeah. Not <laughs> 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 at all. <laughs> wow. All right. Let's just start off with an introduction about yourself, because at this point, I think I know way more about your fictional counterpart <laughs> than about you. So yeah. tell me about James Kirk, the real astronomer. Well, wow, the real astronomer. So currently I am a postdoc at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I've been there for coming up on one year. I am working with uh, the Exoplanet Atmosphere group there, observing exoplanet atmospheres primarily from the ground. Uh, before that, I finished my PhD at the University of Warwick in England last year, where I did a four-year PhD also concerning ground-based observations of exoplanet atmospheres. And before that, I was uh, an undergraduate at the University of Southampton, also in England, where I did a master's in physics with astrophysics. So growing up with the name James Kirk, yes. did you always know that it was your destiny to become <laughs> an astronomer? Or how did that happen? Um, that is a good question. I don't think I ever knew or felt that it was my destiny to become an astronomer. I've always been interested in space, but I suppose the reason that I went into astronomy was because I enjoyed maths and physics at school so much. And I knew that I wanted to do a degree in physics and the astro side of things seemed the most interesting to me at the time, so I followed that path. But I don't think it was ever really clear to me that I was going to go into astronomy. So growing up with the name James Kirk, you've yeah. already said that you, you have friends who call you by Tiberius and, That's right, <laughs> and yeah. Captain. Do you have any funny stories about... Uh, Having the name James Kirk, how, did your parents, oh. were they aware of Star Trek when oh, they yeah. named you? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, so, but, the, but the thing is that my parents are not massive Star Trek fans. Hmm. I mean, they were always aware of the TV show. I mean, it's hard not to be, right? And aware of the name. I have two older brothers who were a bit older than me, about like 10 years older than me. And so when they were born, my parents believed that Star Trek was at the peak of its popularity, but little did they know. <laughs> and so they thought, well, we've always liked the name James, but we'll spare my two older brothers calling him James and we'll wait and then I came along and they thought that the popularity is sort of already peaked and it was sort of taking a, a downturn as it were and then uh, but I mean little, little do they know I don't think they really appreciate the uh, the fan base that Star Trek has. <laughs> yeah if you were born around the same time as me Star Trek The Next Generation was right. just coming on and it was met with a lot of criticism from the fan base that had grown up with the original series yeah. featuring Captain James Kirk. And uh, maybe they thought, oh, this is the end of Star Trek. Yeah, the Next yeah, Generation is yeah. never going to catch on. It'll never take off. Yeah, but little did they know. Huh? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, surely you've seen some Star Trek. How much Star Trek? I have Star seen Trek? Star Trek. Some Star Trek. Not a great deal, to be honest. I. I, uh, I have seen all of the new films, which uh, is probably like saying to a Star Wars fan that I've only seen the sort of prequel trilogy of the Star <laughs> Wars films. Um, but I, I did enjoy those new Star Trek films with uh, Chris Pine. I mm -hmm. thought they were, they, were, they were good fun. 
So you told me over email that you're actually a much bigger fan of Star Wars I than am. Star Trek. Yeah. So uh, what's your favorite part of Star Wars? Just the, I think the fantasy of it, like lightsabers, the Force, Jedis, and the Sith. I mean, it's just an amazing world that is probably more, perhaps more detached from reality than Star Trek, at least my understanding of what I've seen of Star Trek. Mm -hmm. It seems to be probably slightly more rooted in in real science. Yeah, Star Wars is, is very fantasy-esque, yeah. and, um, but it still takes place in space, so did, yes. did it or did any other sci-fi sort of influence your trajectory towards becoming a space scientist? Perhaps subconsciously, yeah. I mean, I have, as I say, I've always been a fan of Star Wars, so it's definitely a possibility that it was subconscious the <laughs> influence of me. So we're here at the Extreme Solar Systems Conference, which is an exoplanet-driven conference, and you're an exoplanet astronomer. I am. So do you have a favorite planet from Star Wars? From Star Wars? Well, I guess it has to be Tatooine, right? Ah. I mean, that scene where Luke has just witnessed the, the death of his uncle and aunt and is staring out across the desert, and you have the Star Wars theme tune playing out in the background and then staring out across the two suns. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, that's that an amazing scene. So, and I think for that reason probably Tatooine would be my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of us are in this business because we're very interested in the possibility of extraterrestrial life. Yes. Do you have a favorite alien from Star Wars? A favorite alien? Well, I do love Boba Fett, but I don't know if you... I guess he is not an alien exactly in the sense that he is like a human life form because he was generated during the clone wars but i am a i am a big fan of boba fett i think he's pretty cool yeah yeah, yeah. he's a badass yeah <laughs> <laughs> Django fett too um, yeah 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 yeah, yeah. all right so um let's turn to your research now yeah so you are actually trying to characterize strange new worlds i am and what are the scientific questions that motivate your work so the scientific questions that motivate my work are primarily trying to understand the atmospheres of hot Jupiters. So these are Jupiter-mass planets on very short period orbits of less than a day to a few days. And so they have atmospheres that are extremely hot up to 2,000, 2,500 degrees centigrade. Some of them are as hot as very low-mass stars. And these are fascinating objects that no one really predicted would be there but indeed the first planets were to be discovered were hot Jupiters and the atmospheres can reveal something about their formation mechanisms and also evolutionary histories and so looking for things like the ratio of carbon to oxygen within the planet's atmosphere can indicate where it formed within the protoplanetary disk and then other things as well, like looking for Rayleigh scattering slopes and the presence of clouds and hazes in the atmospheres of hot Jupiters, and also determining the presence of the alkali metals and things like that, and also looking for water features in the near-infrared. They're all things that I'm primarily concerned with. Mm -hmm. So these are planets that are probably too big and too hot to be habitable by life as we know it. Yes. But we're still training our telescopes on them because they're really crazy objects and we don't have one in our solar system so we want to understand exactly. the physics and the chemistry that goes on there. Yeah, and a lot of these techniques that we are using to study hot Jupiters will be the same techniques that we study or use to study potentially habitable 
exoverts in the future. Excellent. So you've made some pretty cool discoveries about two different planets recently. Yes. WASP-107b and WASP-39b. Yes. Um, those aren't extremely attractive names like <laughs> Tatooine. No, no. Uh, do you give right. them nicknames in your head? Um, you know what? No, I don't really. I guess I, <laughs> I, I associate them with things. So, for example, WASP-107b is this planet that was detected by a group led by Jessica Spake a couple of years ago to be losing massive amounts of helium from its atmosphere. Um, and that was followed up from the ground by a group led by Alert et al. And we have basically gone back and looked at that planet again and confirmed that it's losing helium. So in my mind, I at least associate with, with it being, you know, this helium planet. I, don't, I guess I haven't really got a name for it other than just an association with <laughs> this helium feature. Helium is what fills most balloons, right? Yes. So it could be like your balloon world. That's a good idea, actually. Yeah, yeah, I like that. <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit more about this helium atmosphere. I mean, helium is not the first thing that I think of in terms of what's in a planetary atmosphere. I mean, usually no. it's mostly hydrogen for these very large planets, right? So right. why yeah, does this yeah. planet have such a strange atmosphere? Well, so this planet's atmosphere is probably composed something like 85% hydrogen and 15% helium, something like that. However, the atmosphere itself is also sort of experiencing this extreme UV and X-ray flux from the host star, which has puffed up its atmosphere enormously. So it's a, it's a very low-density planet. So the planet's mass is only like sort of it's a substaten mass planet but its radius is greater than that of Jupiter so it has this extremely extended atmosphere of hydrogen and helium and because of this extended atmosphere the upper layers are sort of being really exposed quite heavily to this XUV flux and that mass that atmosphere is being lost into space and we have not actually got observations of hydrogen loss yet from the planets because the methods we need to observe hydrogen loss would be observing in the ultraviolet and that is only observable by Hubble in space and it's only observable out to a certain distance because the line that we would be looking at for hydrogen, the Lyman Alpha line, is very strongly absorbed by the interstellar medium. I see. So, so it's a planet that's probably losing both hydrogen and helium, but it's hard to detect the hydrogen using the ground-based instruments that we have available, so what you've done is gone after helium. That's correct, yeah. Um, it's possible that it would also be observed to be losing hydrogen via observations of H-alpha, which would be observable from the ground, and that's something that we, we should consider. I don't believe that any other studies concerning WASP-107 have actually looked at that line yet. But yeah, helium line is great because it can be observed in the near infrared, so we can do it from the ground on big telescopes with high resolution spectrographs. And it's something that is now sort of taking off. So this was a line that was predicted to be abundant in hot Jupiter atmospheres back in the late 90s um, by very early theoretical work and has recently come into focus again through the spake detection and also a theoretical study by Antonia Rakopcic who really sort of brought this back to everyone's attention that this was a good line to follow. And just to clarify, when you say a helium line, that just means a, a specific wavelength in the yeah. spectrum. So a, yeah, and it's an absorption feature within the, within the spectrum that gets imprinted on the, the stellar spectrum as you're observing. All right, and tell me a little bit about the other planet, WASP-39b. 
So whilst 39B is another very good target for atmospheric studies, we haven't detected uh, any mass loss from that planet yet, but it also is a very low density planet, it's about a Saturn mass in this time, but again with a radius of about a Jupiter radius. And so it has this very low density, very extended atmosphere, which makes it have a very large atmospheric signal because there's more atmosphere to essentially absorb the starlight that passes through the atmosphere. And so the atmosphere imprints its own absorption signatures on the star's light. And so this has been studied by a few groups previously. And what we did was essentially collate all of the data in the literature with a new study that we have from the ground and basically ran atmospheric retrievals on our data set, which is to say that we fitted our data set with many, many, many models of different atmospheric compositions to try and back out or to obtain the overall metallicity of the planet's atmosphere. Metallicity means? Basically, you sort of sum up all of the metals heavier than hydrogen within the planet's atmosphere, <laughs> and you give that as a ratio of the hydrogen. Yeah, for yeah. the non-astronomers listening, when astronomers say metals, they mean every element heavier than hydrogen and helium, as yeah. James said, which is kind of funny because most people think of metals as a very specific class of elements, and you know, carbon, for instance, usually isn't a metal, but to an astronomer it is. Yeah, yeah. And we found something that was very supersolar metallistic, so that is to say that it has a metallicity as compared to the sun that is highly enhanced. And it's, it's difficult to explain that because it's hard to get such a metal-rich atmosphere for these planets. What are your um, best guesses for how this planet well, formed? It's likely that it formed far out in the protoplanetary disk and then migrated inwards as we think that a lot of hot Jupiters probably underwent that migration history. And it's also perhaps the case that the metallicity of the atmosphere was polluted by impacts from planetesimals early on in its life which essentially boosted the metals within the atmosphere. Got it. Yeah. Cool. All right, just uh, one last question to wrap things up and bring it back to Star Trek a little bit. Yeah. So your counterpart, James Tiberius Kirk, yes. is well known for being a risk taker <laughs> and not accepting any no-win scenarios. Yeah. So what is the biggest risk that you have taken as an astronomer? Biggest risk I've taken? That is a good question. I feel like I am not as good as my counterpart in that case. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite risk averse, really. Has there ever been, I guess, maybe a challenge that you faced as an astronomer that um, maybe had you second-guessing or having doubts about the success of a certain project, but then you found a way around it? Yeah, well, I suppose, I suppose going back to WASP-39, that is a, a planet that has been published and studied by many different groups and those different groups have found results that differ by orders of magnitude. And so there's always a concern when you publish your own paper that is trying to compare these results to, with one another but you're not trying to sort of discredit any one person or you know criticize their work but also you're, you're keen to highlight that there are issues that are underlying you know these different results that people are getting and also you want to present your own results and try and and try and believe that what you have is you know the correct answer and it's sometimes that's, it's difficult to really to really necessarily believe that that is the case yeah i guess it, i'm not sure if it's really a risk but it's it's something that i have to really question and think about 
clearly is how to phrase things when you're comparing results from different people and they don't necessarily agree with your results and with each other. Pushing the frontier means doing things that other people might you know, not necessarily agree with based on their previous work, but yeah. uh, that's the way science works. And that's a mark of a good scientist to always consider, well, may- maybe my idea isn't right either. Maybe yeah. we're just all wrong. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I certainly haven't ruled out that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, very good. Well, thanks for joining me on Strange New Worlds, James. Thank you. Um, live long and prosper and <laughs> keep exploring the cosmos. Yeah, thanks very much. And now you can say that you've heard a podcast episode with James Kirk, the real-life astronomer. And what a wonderful, humble, and down-to-earth person he is. I really enjoyed talking to James about his science and the scientific process. Yes, publishing is scary. You're putting your ideas out there for criticism. And if there's one thing to know about scientists, it's that they are very critical people. Kind of like Trekkies, actually, you know, very nitpicky. They really care about getting things right. And they will criticize you, poke at you, question you. But that's how science works. That's what makes science great, that we always question everything. And not even James Kirk is above further inquiry, and he knows it. And to me, that's one reason why he's been so successful in his career so far. If you're enjoying Strange New Worlds, don't forget to leave a rating or a review. Next time, I'm going to bring you another wonderful surprise that I found in Iceland. Until then, see you out there.